You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we do thank you for listening to America's Web Radio. And it's time for Do Facts Matter with Professor Robert D'Agostino. And uh, he's caught in a little bit of traffic, but will be here very shortly. And uh, I can talk about Do Facts Matter. They certainly don't matter to Democrats. Uh, in fact, uh, Joe Biden wouldn't know a fact and the truth if it hit him um, upside the head, as he has proven over and over again. And... Um, Others that seem to, uh, you know, it's like uh, we had one of our doctors point out that Biden is a communist. Uh, no ifs, ands, and buts about it, as is AOC and many of the Democrats that are pushing us towards socialism when, in fact, socialism, as I was taught when I was in uh, junior high school and high school, is one step away from communism and fascism, and Marxism. So any of the isms start out with socialism. If you want a prime example, you should listen to Let's Talk Venezuelan yesterday when uh, Josie and and, uh, Kat were talking about the fact that, uh, you know, it started out Venezuela was... One of the richest countries in the world, as a matter of fact. Capitalist country producing a lot of oil and uh, doing very well. Then the socialists took over, and then they converted that into the fact that right now Venezuela is a communist country from top to bottom. And this is what we're going towards. And, folks, you better wake up and realize that's exactly what we're going towards. And... um We've got to stop it. I don't want to live under communism, nor do I want my kids or my grandson to live under communism. But that's where we're headed, and uh, there's nothing good about it. As uh, Dr. Scheer said on the doctor's lounge the other day, one of the first things that communism take over is health care. And look at what's happening with health care. I've had... Uh, family members recently within the last few months that uh, it's just deplorable and if you go to the hospital I'm begging you take somebody with you that is knows what they're doing and is able to understand and will question and you know who is this doctor that's supposedly coming in to treat you it's probably in most cases a hospitalist that is one of the worst things that's happened to our medical system ever hospitalist what is that that's a hired gun of the hospital that uh, calls himself a doctor well legally he has to be a doctor but he doesn't give two hoots in hell about you or your family member or whoever they are, whoever is in the bed that you're with. They've never seen him before. And chances are they'll come in with their narcissistic attitude that they know everything and say this, 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 and this. And then tomorrow you'll have another one doing it. You don't get the same hospitalist day in and day out. You're lucky to get the same nurse day in and day out. And, um, you know, I don't know what it's coming to, but uh, you know, it's it's just absolutely crazy, and we've got to do something about it, folks. 
you've got to say no. And speak of the man himself, we've got Professor D'Agostino just walked in the office. I, uh, Robert, I was talking about hospitalists and how the communists are taking over, as the doctor said in the doctor's lounge the other day, they're taking over our medical system. And China is right at the center of it. They've got us by the short hairs because of the amount of manufacturing they do for the farm, big pharmas. So with that, howdy. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Sorry I'm uh, running a little late. Um, one reason I'm running a little late is I was so engrossed in an article that I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, in a minute uh, <clears throat> written by a professor at Cornell University. But to, before I get to that article, because it fits right in with what I'm going to discuss today, which is as, about as important as anything I've said, we are involved right now in this country in what can only be called a Marxist-Leninist insurrection. Marxist-Leninist insurrection. It's Marxist because <clears throat> it's pits group against group. Now, traditional Marxism, of course, was class against class, the pro-totalitarian class against the um, bourgeoisie and what have you, the aristocracy. But now it's identity politics. The, The Democrat Party is pushing this cultural Marxism, group against group, gender against gender, sex against sex, uh, and of course, since uh, the, for the Democrats, just finding everybody's a victim, they got to find an oppressor, and the oppressor is white males. And, well, I should say probably white heterosexual males, and and particularly those who have believe uh, uh, Jewish or Christian beliefs, real beliefs. And in what sense is it Leninist? And this is important because this idea that what's going on in this country today is somehow not coordinated, or there's no planning behind it, is nonsense. Obviously, there's a lot of what happens which is not directly directed, but the strategy is directed, the rioting is encouraged, and yes, we always talk about Antifa, and their uh, organizers, and you can, by the way, if you look at these riots, I'm, gonna, I'm not calling them protests. They're riots. They're not protests. Let's call them what they are. Protests, the, the, the Floyd, the, the <clears throat> murder of George Floyd was a pretext, was a pretext that the, the, the left has been waiting for to set off what, what they intend to do, which is to overthrow this country. Of uh, the constitutional uh, republic, and that is centralized and being con- co- coordinated by Barack Obama and his people, organizing for America. Organizing for America has over thirty thousand members across the country. It is quite well funded by the left-wing billionaires, George Soros among them. They have big money. And they know how to organize, and they hand this money out and pay people. So it's directed and funding, funded insofar as it's directed. Now, I'm not saying they direct every single thing that occurs, 
but I'm saying that the, the encouragement of the rioting, the encourage, and even the encouragement of the looting, is by is by professional organizers. Yes, professional organizers, and they are professional revolutionaries, as Lenin would have or Stalin would have said. And so the organize the. <coughs> Organizing for America, those people who work for them, and, and again, Obama has a house in Washington, D.C., and they have offices of, of organizing for America right there being run out of his residence in Washington, D.C. The they're, they're what Lenin would have called the vanguard. The, the movement of the, for the dictatorship of the proletariat had a vanguard. The proletariat couldn't be trusted. There had to be an intellectual vanguard, the intelligentsia. And remember what George Orwell said about the intellectuals. He said, uh, there are some things so absurd, some ideas so absurd that only an intellectual would believe them. And that's exactly what's happened. So we now have the vanguard, the Leninist vanguard, organizing for America, and, and they are coordinating, of course, with the paramilitary wing, which is, of course, the um, Antifa and the radical wing of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'll, I'll talk. And I know, I know, if you say uh, nasty things or, or negative things, not even nasty. If, actually, if you tell the truth about the Black Lives Matter organization, uh, you uh, risk your job. I've just risked my job, I'm sure. we, uh, You know, um, uh, I not really risk my job. I, first of all, I'm too old. So I figure they're going to get rid of me soon anyway. And, and secondly, I am tenured. And, and thirdly, Atlanta's John Marshall Law School has, in fact, adopted the University of Georgia uh, resolution on free speech. So we not only have our contracts, we have a free speech resolution, and uh, I have no reason to believe Atlanta's John Marshall Law School would not uh, uphold the principles for which it has voted for and adopted. The um, But let's go back to this here. We have now Marx, Marx, it's Marxist in the sense that it's group, group against group. And they're always victim groups. And Marxism was class. And in, in, in now it's, it's identity, identity politics, blacks against whites, homosexuals against heterosexuals, women against men. What, whatever the left can do to create a victim class or people who think they're victims, they're doing that. It's part of the strategy. Uh, you, ha- you have to get people to, to lose complete faith in the system as it is. And the left has worked on that for a long time, and it looks like they're succeeding because they have totally, the Marxist-Leninist movement is totally dominates the Democrat Party. And if the polls are right, if they're anywhere near right, there'll be a gigantic Democrat landslide in November. They will they will pick up how, more House seats. They will pick up the Senate, and they will win the presidency by oh by a Joe. I, it's hard to say Biden. Biden says to me, "Oh no, no one will elect Biden. No one can support Biden. He's a corrupt, gaff prone liar, suffering from cognitive decline." And I tell you, that's perfect. 
That's exactly what they want. Someone as weak as can be. The man is weak and unprincipled and corrupt. It's a perfect front for the left. And you say, oh my goodness, no, you, you merit, merit. No. The left is not interested in merit. Never have been. The left take a, a, a page out of Stalin's book. Let's go back to Stalin. And, and, and Lenin died in, I think, 1924. So the question was, who was going to be the new leader of the Soviet Union? And, of course, there was Stalin and there was Trotsky, the brilliant Trotsky, the theoretician Trotsky. Now, he was, he was a murderer. He, he was instrumental in forming the Cheka, the, the secret police in, um, in the Soviet Union. But he was also uh, the most brilliant, but he lost. How did Stalin win? Because Stalin understood how to control the bureaucracy, that the country had to be run by a bureaucracy. And Stalin purposely made sure it was an incompetent bureaucracy. People who had no reason by merit to be in the positions of authority they were in. That was Stalin's whole idea. If you promoted people who knew they didn't belong in positions of power and making whatever money they were making, they were completely loyal to Stalin because they knew they didn't belong there. What if the bureaucracy in Russia, in the Soviet Union in the early days, was uh, chosen on merit? Well, they may not have had the famine. They may not have had a civil war. They may not have had a lot of things that went wrong. The incompetence in, in the in the production. I mean, it took years and years for Russia, the Soviet Union, to catch up to the productivity of Russia in 1913. Because why? And the only reason they even caught up is because Lenin, realizing that he had, that socialism had wrecked the farms started the new economic policy, which was a return to free market, at least in the farm, se- farm sector. That's another story for another day. I want to get back to where I was, that Stalin intentionally put people who didn't belong there in positions of power and positions uh, to make money and, and to exercise authority. And the people who he put there knew darn well they didn't belong there. But who put them there? Stalin. So he had complete loyalty from the bureaucracy. So when the time came to control the Soviet Union after Lenin's death, there was Stalin with control of the bureaucracy. And he was able to exile Trotsky and then have murdered in Mexico. And he was able to execute his fellow revolutionaries, Bukharin and the rest of them, were, were shot. Because they were, why? Because they weren't true believers? Oh, they were. Because they got where they got again through, through merit. Uh, sure, they, they didn't believe that they believed in strange things and they were wrong about uh, history and about uh, society, but they were very smart and they had some ability. They had to go. And that's what's happening now. Go back, back to Biden. What better person? He believes in nothing except winning an election. 
He's corrupt. He always has been. He's, we used to call him in, in Delaware when he was a senator. He was owned by Wilmington Trust, the bank, big bank in Delaware. Robert, let's uh, let's stop for a second. Okay, let's assume Biden were to win. Yes, which, which I don't think will happen, but always a possibility. So then you got Biden that's too dumb to get in out of the rain. You've got AOC. You've got the Clintons, and you've got Obama. Who's going to be the power of the Democrats? It couldn't be Biden. He hadn't got the brains to do it. No, or, or the beliefs. Well, it won't be the Clintons. The Clintons are a, a criminal couple. They're mostly interested in uh, stealing your money. We're, we're more interested in people who are stealing our lives. That gives it back to Obama. And that means it, the real interesting thing is what are they going to do about the VP nomination? Because <clears throat> let's assume that Biden wins. He obviously can't govern. So the question is who's going to govern? Well, when the Obama administration the, the most influential person governing was a person named Valerie Jarrett. So the question is, will she come back into power? And the answer is yes. She works for the uh, organiza- organization for Amer- organizing for America. She has an office in the residence of the Obamas in Washington. So she'll be back in there. I think uh, there'll be a lot of appointments of high-level leftists. Uh, look, Obama... <laughs> In, in a sense, Obama was the most corrupt president in American history, not because he stole money, but because he politicized and corrupted the entire bureaucracy. He politicized the FBI. He politicized the CIA. He abused the power of the government uh, against his enemies, which included Trump in the end. And look, they've carried on a war against Trump for three and a half years now. And they've gotten nowhere in terms of, of, of the facts, but the facts don't matter. That's what my, what my show is called, The Facts Matter. No, they don't. Uh, and so, but you tell enough lies in a row and you got the goibles, you know, in Germany. People start believing them. And certainly they've surrounded Trump with a very negative atmosphere because he plays into that sometimes. And, but I ask people, I ask my left-wing colleagues, just exactly what law did Trump break? And they can't name it. Oh, Trump is a crook. He's a terrible. He's, he's a, he's a tyrant. He's, I said, what's your evidence? They have none. And then, and they'll never have any, but it doesn't make any difference. Facts don't matter. I picked up <clears throat> to, to, to go back to the analogy to Lenin and Stalin <clears throat> and the uh, Marxist Leninist way of ruling things. Professor at Cornell named William A. Jacobson, who has been after him for a while. The cancel culture has been after him for a while. And his uh, post is called Cornell University takes a major step towards compulsory racial activism for faculty and students. Notice the word compulsory. What did Stalin do? He had his political commissars in every factory, in every military unit, and at least every week, sometimes more often, there'd be a political indoctrination course. And people were went voluntarily to the political indoctrination speech, except for the fact that it wasn't voluntary. If you didn't go, you were a counter-revolutionary. If you didn't participate and applaud, you were a counter-revolutionary, 
and that was the end of your career, maybe even your life, and certainly the gulag awaited you. <clears throat> the um, proposed initiative by this, and by the way, <laughs> come to think of it, this the Pollock is uh, she's the new president of uh, she's the president of Cornell. How do these people get into power? It's the same. It's the same philosophy that drove Stalin to appoint mediocrities or less to positions of a power and authority. The left understands very much. So if someone becomes in the major universities, the deans, especially in the social social sciences, the presidents, the provosts, the the vice presidents. When they hire them, the faculty has to review the hiring, generally speaking, and they always will opt for a candidate that they feel they can manipulate weakness. Anyone who shows strength is not going to get a job at these major universities in, in, uh, in the high-ranking high, high administrative positions. They're not going to get a position. Only maybe if they get into serious financial trouble, they'll bring in somebody. It's like what happens in this country. A state gets in financial trouble, it gets all messed up, and the people go and elect a Republican governor. As soon as the Republican governor straights it out, they kick him out and put in a Democrat promising free stuff. So you say to me, so, so why, why do people like places like Vermont and Maryland and Massachusetts all have Republican governors to clean up messes? And once they're cleaned up, out they go. And uh, that's that's why I'm not as optimistic as as my producer here, Dave, about the next election. I uh, I'm very much fear uh, that uh, it'll be a Democrat sweep, and that'll be the last. As my son pointed out, that'll be the last free election we've ever had here in this country. If the Democrats take the House, the Senate, and the presidency, it's over, because they will move towards an immediate amnesty for up to 22 million illegals of which eight or nine million are voters, and they will always vote Democrat. And there'll be no chance for any Republican to ever win again. Plus, of course, the Democrats are experts on, on vote fraud. Uh, I'll tell you a story about that after I finish this. But anyway, here is uh, what uh, the proposal from the president of Cornell, uh, <clears throat> this is from her proposal, and quoting, Educational, quote, educational requirements, this is a mandatory, proposed initiatives, this is a mandatory, quote, educational requirement on racism, bias, and equity for all Cornell students. A new anti-racism center, an institution-wide themed semester focused on issues of racism, unquote. And, of course, it also includes a mandatory faculty participation in programming regarding, quote, race, racism, and colonialism in the United States, unquote. Now, what's the physics professor want to go there for? Why don't you leave him alone so he can uh, contemplate the cosmos and maybe in, figure out what dark energy is or dark matter? They don't... Two big puzzles in, in physics today. What, what's dark energy? What's dark matter? They don't know. So let them continue that research. How about the biology professors, medical professors? Oh, but you know, most institutions, major institutions, are dominated by the social sciences. 
by professor of gender studies, the professor who's uh, giving courses in comic books, the professor who's out there <coughs> African-American studies on serious stuff. They talk nothing about race. All they talk about is racism. So you have, and, and not to mention deans or associate deans, I should say, for diversity and inclusion, the most notorious one out in California, of course, in one of the branches of the University of California, who's making $400,000 a year to be the associate dean for diversity and inclusion. I can't tell you how many HR positions in various universities and academic institutions, uh, colleges, universities, have these kinds of associate deans. And, and obviously, they're people mostly of rather modest intellectual achievement. Anyway, this um, Professor Jacobson he points out what's going on. So what's happened now is the focus on skin color. You know, Martin Luther uh, uh, King said, well, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King said, well, we, we don't want to take, we don't want to consider skin color. We want to consider merit. We want to consider the character. It's even more important than marriage sometimes in terms of ability to do something. But the character of people's hearts. Now, of course, is absolutely obsessive. We've gone way back the other way. The, the focus on skin color is a requirement. And, of course, that underlies activism. So, so as uh, Professor Jacobson points out, not being racist is not enough. One must be anti-racist, a term famously used in a book, quote, How to Be an Anti-Racist, unquote, suggested reading by Cornell University's President Martha Pollack. So you got to be an anti. And by the way, as Black Lives Matter has uh, pointed out, silence is violence. You're either with us or against us. And if you're silent, you're against us, therefore a racist. So you must join us or be labeled a racist. Silence is violence. Black Lives Matter. I'm talking about the organization, Black Lives Matter. You know, as someone pointed out, I forgot who, was on the radio. Uh, if someone says to you, Black Lives Matter, you may respond, all Black Lives Matter, because the organization of Black Lives Matter has no interest in black lives. They only have interest in black lives that are taken by white policemen, or at policemen generally now, black policemen included. They're, they're short hairs as well as white policemen. Um, but so if you say all black lives matter, you may include all those people getting shot right now. The borough president of Brooklyn, New York, and Brooklyn is uh, Kings County, is uh, the borough of Brooklyn in New York. A Democrat, a black Democrat has said, hey, we need to get back the plainclothes anti-crime force that Mayor Bill de Blasio abolished. Murders, shootings are out of control. We need to get them. Too many of my constituents, including black constituents, mostly black constituents, are being shot and killed. What's the the, uh, the violent crime in New York? Uh, last week was 277% greater than the year before. 
for that week, an analogous week, and, and murders are going sky high. Maybe New York will re- overtake Colorado for the most murders. Colorado or Chicago? I'm sorry, Chicago, not yeah. Colorado. I'm thinking about Denver and what's may happen there. But, uh, you know, I'm sorry, Chicago. Uh, now, and we all know Chicago is the most murders. Of course, that's mostly confined to the uh, minority areas, particularly black areas. Uh, although they're not the violent, most violent city per 100,000. Violence per 100,000 of population, uh, the leading cities are uh, St. Louis, Detroit, and Baltimore, all of which have cut their budgets for police way back. And, of course, uh, in Baltimore and St. Louis, you have all the stand-down orders for police because police have been nasty. I mean, St. Louis was Ferguson. I mean, you know, the policeman defending himself from uh, a thug named Brown who had just robbed a convenience store, who's now lionized as a martyr, and uh, called a Ferguson effect. You know, this is where I'd like to interrupt and just tell everybody that when you get a chance, like every morning I drive by and there's a cop in the same place checking speed or whatever he does, and I just salute him as I drive by. And uh, sometimes he waves back, sometimes he doesn't. But with that being said, no matter where you are, if you see an officer, police officer, or military personnel in uniform, Go up and just say thank you. That's all it takes. Just thank you. And you'll be amazed at the smile that will come on their face. I did did it in the grocery store the other day in my city. And uh, the police officer was just, you know, he was beaming by the time I could get the word you, thank you, out of my mouth. And, uh, you know, they want to be appreciated. They they give up their lives for us, and all it takes from us is a thank you. You got my support. I've got your back. You've got my back. And uh, this goes into the military side of it. But all you have to do is go up and say thank you. If you get an opportunity to buy them a meal, buy them a meal. So back to you, Robert. Well, well th- yeah, I, I think you're completely right. And it brings up an incident yesterday. I went to a uh, wedding yesterday, and um, one of the uh, uh, people at the wedding, uh, I spoke to one of the um, uh, young women, and uh, she's married to a policeman. And when she told me she was married for a policeman, it's like she didn't want to say it. It's like they've been so attacked and so... Uh, you know, criticized and, and so dis- un- disrespected that she seemed she was reluctant to say that her husband was a policeman. That's a shame. And, you know, I, I picked up on something today on Fox News. I've been saying it for years because I do it. I ride with the police on occasions. And uh, I think every politician, everybody ought to ride and find out what that cop is up to or what they have to go through on a day-in, day-out basis, whether you ride with them at night, if you got the guts to do that, or you ride with them during the day. And, uh, you know, 
I, I've done this ever since I was a reporter for my radio station, or not my radio station, but the radio station I was working with, because I would find out information and and enjoyed it and found out what cops do. And I ain't going to be the one crawling in that black building that uh, has been reported as being a robbery going on or a break-in going on. I'm not going to crawl in that window and try to find out what's happening in that building and i doubt that you would either so when you when you start trying to criticize the cops uh, it's like the old india american indian saying walk a mile in my moxicans find out what the police do and even at that point you don't have the right to judge well it's interesting you would bring that up because uh my wife is a psychologist, and she worked with the police for years. And she used to go on ride-bys with the police officers. She worked with the police in uh, Delaware, when we lived in Delaware, and she worked with the police down here. So she is very familiar with what they have to go through. And and my wife, uh, having worked with the police for years and years, uh, tends to be extremely uh, sympathetic and extremely appreciative of what the police do. I, I want to go one step further. Not only saying thank you to the police and get a, and put a smile on their face, but as you're doing that, whether it's military, police, or whatever it happens to be that's in uniform, thank them for their service, but also in the back of your mind, God bless their families because. A military person, it's, uh, it may be the man or the woman serving in, on active duty, but their families are behind them supporting him. And every day, every day that a cop pins on his badge and goes out, he has to have that family supporting him and wondering, is he going to come back or is she going to come back? And that takes a attitude that I don't know. I couldn't accept. It's like, um, I couldn't. I can't imagine living in Israel with the fact that you don't know when a missile's going to strike again. So think about it, folks. Before you criticize, walk in their shoes. Well, of course, uh, if you take a look at how many policemen are now retiring early or quitting the force in the major cities like New York, I think the last time I saw that over 700 policemen, uh, and, 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 and the number is now accelerating. Uh, well, why not? I mean, the Bill de Blasio was uh, is uh, <laughs> throwing him under the bus. Well, getting back to this book about um, how to be an anti-racist that Professor William Jacobson of Cornell talks about, and by the way, you should look up his blog uh, and uh, see what he has to say because he's standing against <laughs> a good part of the faculty and a good part of the students uh, uh, that... Uh, because of his, uh, let's say, correct analysis of the Black Lives Matter movement and the, and the organization. And here's what he said. I've just started reading How to Be an Anti-Racist, although I haven't finished the book. From the intro chapters, it is clear that compulsory activism is required and race-neutral criteria are rejected. Inaction is considered racist. This review by Coleman... Hughes summarizes the thesis. If the book has a core thesis, 
it is that the war admits of no neutral parties, no ceasefires. For Kendi, there is no such thing as a non-racist idea. Kendi's the author of the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. For Kendi, there is no such thing as a non-racist idea, only racist ideas and anti-racist ideas. His Manichaean outlook extends to policy. Every policy in every institution, in every community, in every nation is producing or sustaining either racial inequity or equity, Kendi proclaims, defying the former as racist policies and the latter as anti-racist. And remember, Black Lives Matter, silence is violence. You know, this is a statement for a totalitarian state. In a totalitarian state, the idea is to shrink the private sector, increase the public sector, increase public concern. The personal becomes political. Everything, who you, what you say, what you think, who you associate with, what you're allowed to own, what job you're allowed to have, this all now becomes political. Lenin made that plain. Lenin, in, 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 Ruling on behalf of the proletariat, so it was up to the vanguard, the intellectual uh, vanguard, to decide what's best for each person, because what's best for each person would mean what's best for the state. You had to put the state's interest first, which, of course, meant that people couldn't change jobs, people c- couldn't uh, own too much, uh, own more pr- than little pieces of personal property. So the idea was everything becomes a a, a question of politics. Everything becomes political. And that's the definition of totalitarian. People think, oh, well, a dictator, that's, that's what they think. Well, eventually the government becomes di- dictatorial. There is no way for a socialist government not to end up dictatorial. There's no way. Because what's it all based on? A command economy? So you start command, it's what they call it, command economy. So you're commanding people, you know, what they can, companies can form, what they can do. And pretty soon you're commanding people about everything. You know, it, it, uh, the, the famous, uh, and this is in this country. I mean, the answer is going on in this country. We're heading towards, uh, what, what I would call a, um, not a purely socialist economy. I, I don't think that's going to get there. We're going to get to a, uh, uh, corporate capitalist economy where, where the government decides who gets the money, who gets the support and what corporations can do. And the big corporations go along. They love it because what does the government do? It destroys small business. That's Obama administration spent eight years destroying small business with their regulations and taxes. More small businesses went out of business than than were formed. That was reversed in the Trump administration. A lot of good is going to do Trump if your polls are right. But the point is the destruction of competition is something that big corporations want. So they support the Democrats and they support regulation. And they don't care about this move towards totalitarianism because as Saul Alinsky said, the great left-wing strategist, when asked, how come you have so much success in negotiating with these big corporations? And he said, it's easy. I understand that if I promised them a profit today, they would sell me the rope that I could use to hang them tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That's what he said. And that's exactly what our big corporations are. 
they're willing to do what's necessary to prevent the Trump administration from blocking them from China, for example. They would just be happy with a global government based on the Chinese model so they could go on breaking in their billions of dollars in profits. There is, and what, and what, look, the Democrats don't believe it, don't, are not serious when they say, oh, these billionaires, the billionaires are Democrats. The, the biggest ones, nine out of 10, the last time I looked, go ahead and look it up. Billionaires. And that doesn't even include George Soros because he's sped his money around to so many different foundations that 18 billion the last time that he's not listed personally anymore in the top 10, but he controls as much money as most of the people in the top 10. Uh, probably 40, 50 billion dollars. Uh, they're Democrats. So there's no way that, that the Democrat are ever going to really attack the billionaires, really do anything that they don't like. They may raise taxes here and there, but they'll give them something else, knock out competition, reopen the markets to Iran and to, um, to, to China, particularly to China. So, so don't believe them. They're just lies. The, what we're going to have, and the big corporations will support the Democrats in this, we're going to have a corporate capitalist society. Remember during the Obama administration, some, the federal government subsidized some 30 or so companies, green, Solyndra was only one of them. These green companies, the future of American energy, the future of our economy, everyone, with one exception, dissolved or went one way or another. He sold out to the Chinese, went into bankruptcy, or closed their doors. Solyndra was just the biggest of them, and, and the taxpayer took a 500 and some odd million dollar loss on Solyndra. What happened in New York with the brilliant uh, uh, Mario Cuomo? It put $750 million into a green factory to make uh, panels, solar panels. It went belly up, $750 million down the tubes. And he spent that money instead of listening to his advisors of getting ready for medical emergencies. So New York was woefully short of PPIs, personal protection equipment, and short of ventilators and anything else because Mario Cuomo spent all the money with, of course, his Democratic legislature on these frivolous green projects. And we're about to see how much those green projects are going to wreck the country because they will. There, There's no energy makes the country go. There is no so-called green energy that's more efficient than natural gas and 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 low-cost oil and coal. And if you think the trade-off necessarily is um, less pollution, I just point out to you that uh, those electric cars, they got to be uh, charged up. And where do they get their... Uh, Electricity from, we're up to a hard break. Quick stakes. That's Q U I K stakes. 
are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quickstakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quickstakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is David Donaldson with the Atlanta Healing Center, conveniently located in Lawrenceville, Georgia. At AHC, your success is our goal. Addiction recovery is about more than just not using. It's about becoming a whole person and addressing all aspects of your physical, psychological, and social needs. Please call us at 770-696-9862, or you can reach us on the web at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion? on America's Web Radio. Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. This is Professor Robert D'Agostino back with Do Facts Matter? And uh, increasingly, that don't matter at all. Uh, so go back to what Professor William Jacobson is talking about and what's really happening and we have an obsessive focus on race right now the color of one's skin uh, that is uh, you know i guess that gets us away from the focus on transsexuals for a while but anyway we're um and and what's that combined with at least cornell is telling us it's a requirement of activism and that's going to be the future obsessive focus on race and a requirement of activism. No silence. Silence is violence, as Black Lives Matter says. So, and that means everything, everything becomes a question of politics. Everything comes subject to the public requirements, public regulation. And we see, we see now, I mean, we thought that the, the left was targeting the Second Amendment, which of course it does. The um, idiot mayor of Chicago says the solution to violent crime in Chicago is more gun control. Well, Chicago has the toughest gun control uh, uh, regulations in the country. So what's more gun control going to do? Take more guns away from people who are defending themselves? It certainly isn't going to take guns away from the cr- criminals. They don't buy their guns at gun shows. I mean, that's ridiculous. They don't buy their guns uh from, from retailers. They buy their guns on the street. Go to, you can go to street in certain parts of Atlanta and, uh, if you, if you look, uh, right and you're dressed right and you ask the right person, you can buy a gun. Now, some of the revolvers you can buy are pretty cheap and don't work all that well, thank goodness. Some of the criminals buy them. They don't necessarily, when they pull the trigger, they don't necessarily kill somebody. The bullet may not come out. Criminals have no trouble getting guns. They're imported, illegally imported from other countries. They're illegally made. 
They're stolen. And then they're sold on the streets. So these criminals, they don't buy their guns at gun, gun shows. They don't buy their guns from gun retailers. So, oh, Mayor Lightfoot over there in, in Chicago, well, we're going to control the violence in Chicago by having more gun control laws. To what end? I suppose you can say that if every single gun in the country could be confiscated, it would be wonderful. But it can't. It can't. No matter what happens, it can't. Because the criminals won't give up their guns. And some years ago, I think it was Australia, had a, a gun buyback thing. And they were so happy about all these guns were being turned in and, and people were getting money for the guns. They were buying the guns back. And <clears throat> guess what happened? Gun sales rose <laughs> incredibly. Everyone who sold their old guns went out and bought a new gun. Oh, you know, people are not perfectible, despite what the left thinks. New man, new man. We're going to have new man. And let me tell you how bad it is. This is, this is Cornell, what the Professor Pollock, uh, President Pollock has suggested, and Martha Pollock has suggested in Cornell, that the, she's recommended the creation and implementation of a four credit educational requirement on racism, bias, and equity for all Cornell students. So a a four-credit course of political indoctrination or left-wing Marxist-Leninist indoctrination. A systemic review of the curriculum in each of our colleges and schools to ensure that courses reflect, represent, and include the contributions of all people. Several college schools and departments already have done this. Well, sure. Now, are you going to go to the math department? Now, you know, there's there's a a lot of reasons why European science moved ahead of other sciences. And we got Newtonian physics and Einsteinian physics. Some of it's related to climate. If you're in a climate where food is easy to come by. Either you hunter-gatherer or grow it or pick it off trees or what have you. There's not so much of an incentive to figure out how to live better because you're living pretty well. But you go to a colder climate. Remember, everybody came out of Africa. I mean, if the evolutionists are right, then then humanity originated in Africa and spread from Africa all over the world. Well... If you spread into Northern Europe, you better figure out how to do things. You develop clothing. You develop hunting stuff. Then you want to get better hunting uh, weapons. So you got one thing leads to another. So, you know, I don't know how you balance every college. College of Engineering, yeah. Biology, yeah. I mean, life sciences. Math, physics may be harder to do. Amplification of Cornell's existing scholarship on existing scholarship, huh? On anti-racism and the creation of an anti-racism center that further strengthens our research and, and education on systems and structures that perpetuate racism. Sounds wonderful, isn't it? And let's see, what's the end? 
and inequality. I should have known that was the end. And on policies and in- interventions that break that cycle. And of course, all faculty would be expected to participate in this programming and follow on discussion in their departments. Development to ensure understanding, development of a new set of programs focusing on the history of race, racism, and colonialism in the United States, designed to ensure understanding of how inherited social and historical forces have shaped our society today and how they affect interaction inside and outside of our classrooms. The commitment to real change is the responsibility of all, particularly those of us in the majority communities. It is our responsibility to read, reflect, learn, listen, and then change the system that has disadvantaged our black, indigenous, and other colleagues. Well, you know what we need to do? We need to go back and just figure out how the great society and the war and poverty destroyed low-income families. In the 19, and that's mostly minority families in this country. In the 1950s, post-World War II area, in the 1950s, up to the very early part of the 60s, black families were intact. Only 11% of black kids were raised in single family homes. Only 25% were born, uh, 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 to single mothers. And then the community pressured a lot of those fathers to get married, take care of their own kids. But great society, as one person said, married black women with children to the government, relieving men of their responsibilities. Relieving men of responsibilities is always kind of dangerous. As somebody said, some, and I mentioned this before, I think on the show, some French philosopher, I gotta look this one up, said, civilization was invented by men to impress women. Well, if women we're not concerned about being taken care of anymore because the government did it and men were able to, let's say, avoid their responsibilities. Well, why not avoid them? So when we reflect on what we've done wrong, yeah, the, the enemy of the blacks is, uh, are essentially white liberals. They're the ones who thought up the great society. And the interesting thing about the great society and war and poverty is Lyndon Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, who signed off on all this, knew it was a mistake. But he was so intimidated by all these Kennedy advisors from Harvard that he had kept over after the Kennedy assassination that he did it anyway. And he knew it wouldn't work. And we want to do more of the same, but have reparations, throw more money so they don't... You know, the, the welfare reform under uh, Clinton and, uh, and Bush worked took a lot of people off welfare took, and, and, and t- kept a lot of daddies working for their kids combined with policies that increased policing. If we were really concerned about all black lives we'd be insisting on more policing, more funding, more stop and frisk. How many thousands of young black males were saved in New York because of the policies of Rudy Giuliani and then Blumenthal? How many? Uh, Bloomberg, excuse me. Keep going Bloomberg. That's a senator from Connecticut. Bloomberg. How many? Take a look at the figures. The number of murders 
in New York before Giuliani became mayor. 3,000 a year. The number of murders when Bloomberg left the mayor down to 300 a year, one-tenth. How many thousands of lives? What's happening in New York now under the Bill Comrade, as they call him, Bill de Blasio? And of course, Bill de Blasio was, at least in one part of his career, an admitted communist. But he is wrecking New York as we speak. That's it for today. And I hope you took this seriously. Organizing for America. Look it up. They're behind the organization of what's going on. Directly and indirectly. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.